If you're new and visiting us this morning, my name is Brendan, um, a pastoral intern at this church, and uh, our church loves visitors. Thank you so much for, for visiting us. Trust you feel welcome. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're continuing on in our series uh, on Acts, uh, this week looking at Acts chapter 9, 32, all the way through to 1118. Um, so if you can open your Bibles actually at Acts 11, that would be great. Glenn Thompson. Last, uh, last night we had uh, Julie's hippie 60th and Glenn, I didn't even recognize him when he, when he came to see me, a big, you know, bender moustache and long flowing hair and my word, that was fantastic. Dave was wearing the same costume as Julie, so uh, that was awkward and confusing altogether. <laughs> uh, hi, hi Julie. Oh, sorry Dave. Uh, open up your Bibles. Last week, I thought Dave gave a great message on transforming grace, about how Saul gets a new worldview, a new community, and a new spirit. Well, if last week was transforming grace, this week we're looking at unifying grace. So open those Bibles to Acts 11. And I'm going to read from verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision Something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened to me three times, and all was drawn up into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, 
Then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. To him who is able to do far more than what we could hope or imagine. Lord, to you this morning, I ask for you to do far more than I could hope or imagine for. Lord, as as you expound upon your word this morning, Lord, as you speak to us from your word with precious truths about yourself, Lord, would you speak deeply into our hearts, Lord? Would you change us? Would you help us to see Christ more clearly and all he's done for us? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this week, Charlotte and I, uh, we went to see a, a movie uh, called 12 Years a Slave. I don't know if you've heard of the movie before. It, it won the Academy Award this year for Best Picture. And it's a deeply moving, touching film. It's about a man called Solomon Northup, who is a free black man living in the New York area in the USA around the 1850s. And, and Solomon is a gifted, a gifted violinist and a gifted carpenter. And he's married and he has two young children. And one day, the story goes, and in fact it's a true story, this man Solomon uh, is meeting with some men who are offering him some work Uh, because they've heard him play the violin and how gifted he is. And these men offer him some work in Washington, D.C., and he travels with them to perform. But after the performance, they drug him. And the next thing that happens is Solomon wakes up in chains in prison. The next 12 years of Solomon's life are spent as they ship him down to Georgia in the south, where he's sent from plantation to plantation working as a slave. The next 12 years he spends trying to get a letter back home that he might have a chance of freedom because no one will believe that he's anything but a slave. And there's this moving scene just at the start of the film when Solomon is bound in chains and there's a man standing next to him. And as Solomon tries to explain to him, saying, look, my name is Solomon Northup. I am a free man. I have family. Send for my family. The scene unfolds as this man flogs him and flogs him and flogs him, crying, you're a slave. You're a slave. You're a slave. And beats him to a bleeding mess. It's a brutal, moving, touching film about about just the terrible terrible nature of slavery in the USA in the 19th century. But what the film at heart is about is that on the basis of his ethnicity, on the basis of the colour of his skin, this man, Solomon Northup, suffers incredible injustice. And as we today open up this passage of scripture, as we look at this couple of chapters in Acts, we'll witness a period in history where, in fact, incredible injustices and discrimination were being committed by 
the people of God based on ethnicity. The title for this week's sermon is Neither Jew Nor Greek, The Unifying Power of the Gospel. And I've got three points. That's the divide, the dream, and the dynamite. But the main message, the main point that I'll be driving home this morning is that if you're a Christian, God has removed every divide that once excluded you and joined you to his people. That's if you're a Christian. God has has removed every divide that once excluded you, that once stood in your way and joined you to his people. Well, let's get stuck in. Uh, open up your Bibles with me uh, as, we, as we begin from chapter 9, verse 32, the divide, our first point. Well, just by way of context, the last couple of weeks we've been looking at Saul and Saul's conversion and how he persecuted the church, but had this amazing turnaround. Now the, 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 the narrative shifts to be about Peter. And we're reading a, the book called, obviously, The Acts of the Apostles, where Moving into a section, really, the Acts of Peter. So, why don't you uh, just read along with me as we read from verse 32, chapter 9, verse 32. Now, as Peter came, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. Peter went here and there amongst them all. Peter had an itinerant ministry. He would travel around from place to place, performing miracles, healing people, and preaching the gospel. And so Peter is in Lydda. Lydda is about a day's journey, about roughly 40 kilometers away from Jerusalem. And he goes to this place, and he heals a man called Aeneas. He then moves on from Lydda to a town called Joppa. Now, Joppa is a little bit different from Lydda because it's predominantly a Gentile city. It's still in the Holy Land. It's still in Judah. But it's predominantly filled with Greek-speaking people. And he comes to this place and he raises a woman called Tabitha, or in Greek, Dorcas. But the important thing to note as we begin this story is that For the Apostle Peter, he has a ministry that is exclusively to Jews. Well, what does this mean? Why does this matter? What this means is that, friends, for I think all of us, as Gentiles, that word meaning people of the nations, if you were sick and ill, Peter would not have come to visit you. If you were sick and ill and in need of help, Peter would not have come to you. Why? Because you are a Gentile. Because you are not part of the people of God. And so he would have had nothing to do with you. Now, what are some reasons for this? Well, there's some biblical reasons that we can take into consideration. For instance, ceremonial uncleanliness or uncleanliness. Leviticus 11, a whole chapter in the book of Leviticus is, is, is dedicated to laws about foods, what you can eat, what you cannot eat, things that are permitted, things that are not permitted. 
Another reason is to do with pagan idolatry. Pagans, for the most part, as was the practice in the time, would worship a plethora of, of gods. And if you read Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, the first commandment from God is, I am the Lord your God, you shall not have any other gods before me. So, of course, as a Jew, I don't want to be, have anything to do with pagan idol worshipping or anything of the sort. But in the same breath, there were concessions made for non-Jews, for Gentiles in the Old Testament. In fact, God had a plan for foreigners, for Gentiles. You know, if we read in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, from verse 1, a famous passage, God says to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth, they shall be blessed. God speaks to Abraham and he says, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. By in you in this passage, he doesn't mean just for those inside your family. No, he means in you in the sense of through you. God says, you will be my instrument, Abram, to bless all the families, all the people, every tribe, every tongue in this whole earth. That's my plan. That's what God says to him. So though there were some biblical considerations we see in the old testament that it points to god's plan to include the gentiles in the books of joel and and zephaniah joel ends with in joel chapter 2 joel joel the prophet says he says that god is going to bring his spirit and pour it out on all flesh everyone in zephaniah he says god is going to call all peoples from every nation to call upon the lord that's god's plan So there are some biblical considerations as to why Peter would have nothing to do with you. Why Jews had nothing to do with Gentiles. But there's also, and in fact I would say mainly, non-biblical considerations. Firstly, there was increasing racial prejudice at that time. Israel had, in fact Jerusalem, had, had seen many wars. First the Babylonians then the Macedonians, then the Romans. And with these people coming and invading their land came their religion. An increase of Greek-speaking people and an increase in their temples and their gods. And so Jews had an increasing prejudice and dislike for everything to do with foreigners living in their land. Secondly, the Pharisees, in response created pharisaical or Pharisees being religious people, religious non-biblical laws that excluded Gentiles. And I just went, I was reading some of these this week and they're full on and they're detailed. You know, they put a three-day buffer if you were an Orthodox Jew between doing any transactions between you and a Gentile three days before or after any Gentile ceremony. And it began with pagan ceremonies, but it moved to include things like birthdays, welcome home celebrations, 
Within three days of that, you couldn't, you couldn't buy or sell anything with a Gentile. You had to avoid pagan cities on festive occasions. Jewish women were forbidden, expressly forbidden from delivering Gentile babies if a, if a Gentile mother was in need. You could sell milk drawn from a cow by a Gentile or bread or oil prepared by a Gentile hands, but you couldn't drink it or eat it yourself. That was forbidden. If a Gentile uh, came into a Jewish house, that Gentile, he or she, had to be supervised at all times. For if you left them unsupervised, every, every instrument from your kitchen and every item of food had to be destroyed or purified because you couldn't be sure what they touched. You couldn't lease a house or field or a cattle to a Gentile. Any article, however distantly connected with paganism, was expressly to be destroyed. In fact, if you had a weaving shuttle, like a rod used to weave, that came from a field that was dedicated to idols, as in the weaving shuttle came from a tree that was lying in a field dedicated to idols. Any item of clothing that was made with that weaving shuttle had to be destroyed. In fact, any item of clothing coming from that weaving shuttle, coming from the field that was dedicated to idols, that was placed on any other garment, would then, then make the whole garment unclean, and the whole garment had to be destroyed. Gentiles, by nature of man-made laws, were excluded. John Stott writes it this way. He says, It is difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between Jews on the one hand and Gentiles, even including the God-fearers, on the other. Not that the Old Testament itself countenanced such a divide. On the contrary, alongside the oracles against the hostile nations, it affirmed that God had a purpose for them. By choosing and blessing one family, he intended to bless all the families of the earth. The tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism, became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions which kept them apart. The point is this. Gentiles were hated. There was a dividing wall of hostility, Paul writes in the book of Ephesians. But you need to understand that these were our forefathers. You know, back at the time that this was written, if you're from a Caucasian background, our ancestors were nomadic tribesmen living in Britannia. Pagans. These are our forefathers. Gentiles were hated by Jews, and if you were amongst the, the Jews at this point in time, they would have looked at you and said, Gentile dog. Well, let's move on to our first character, or our second character, more correctly, in this story, Cornelius. Why don't you open up uh, your Bibles to chapter 10, and we'll read from, we'll read from verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So we meet this man, Cornelius. Cornelius is a God-fearer. He's, he's not uh, a Jewish convert. He's not circumcised, but he's accepted Yahweh as God. 
He's a centurion. He leads about a hundred soldiers out of a cohort. That's 600 soldiers stationed in Caesarea. Now, Caesarea was a port city and it was the provincial capital of Judah. It was still in the Gentile territory, obviously, but it was the equivalent of, I guess, a Canberra. It was full of diplomats and governors of the whole region. That's the Roman governorship. And so not only do we learn that, that, that uh, our, our friend Cornelius is a God-fearer, but also he's, he's a pious man. It says he prayed continuously. This probably means that he participated in the three times daily prayers of the Jews. Even more than that, Cornelius is a generous man. And he sees this vision of an angel. And the story goes that he sees this vision and is completely terrified. And the angel comes and speaks to him and says, God's heard your prayers, Cornelius. Now send to Joppa, where our friend, this man Peter, Simon Peter, is staying with a tanner. Send for him because he has this message for you to hear. So Cornelius sends. He sends two household servants and he sends a very close soldier of his. And they travel down to, to Joppa. So, but the point that, that I want us to see in this instance is that Cornelius, even though he's a God-fearer, even though he is painted as a faithful, devout man, he is separated from God's people. You know, when Peter returns back, as we read earlier, he is immediately criticized by the Jews in Jerusalem. What are you doing with this man? And this separation is not primarily because of Old Testament law, but primarily because of racial prejudice against Gentiles. Turn with me just quickly to chapter 10, verse 28. The first half says, and this is Peter speaking, and he said to them, and you yourselves know How unlawful it is, he says to Cornelius, for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. That word unlawful doesn't mean according to the law. In fact, that word unlawful is better translated probably as not customary or taboo. Peter stands before Cornelius and says, you yourselves know how taboo it is for me, a Jew, to have anything to do with anyone of a different nation. There was a great divide between Jew and Gentile, and this wasn't primarily based on the Old Testament. It was primarily based around prejudice. Well, point two, the dream. So Cornelius' servants are traveling to Peter, and our story comes back to Peter, where Peter is on the roof of his house in the midday prayer, and as you probably can relate to when praying, suddenly finds himself hungry. So he asks someone to go downstairs and prepare some food for him. And while they're preparing food, he has this incredible vision, this incredible dream that God gives to him. So let's read on from uh, verse 10 in chapter 10, the story. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet 
descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came to him a voice. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And you can almost, as he sees this incredible vision of this sheet coming down, you can almost, you can almost feel the disgust. You can almost feel his absolute horror at the thought of eating and killing any of these unclean animals. You know, I, I, I spent a couple of years living in Aceh, and Aceh is a place that has Sharia law, where they live according to the law of Islam. And part of what it means to be a Muslim and live according to Islamic laws is to follow uh, eating requirements that are quite similar to the requirements of the day, the Leviticus 11 purity laws. And so people don't eat pork, they don't drink alcohol, they have rules about preparing meat. And people would often come to you as a foreigner, as someone who is from a, a religious Muslim perspective, unclean. And they would ask you, have you eaten pork today? And you say, no. And they'd say, because they want to hear you say, yes, I've eaten pork. They'd say, ever have you eaten pork before? And you almost, you almost buy into the legalism. You almost find yourself feeling ashamed to say it. Such is the cultural pressure. This is not something that you do. You eat pig, you are defiled, you are unclean. And you almost sort of guiltily say, yes. And so you can almost feel Peter's disgust at this voice telling him to kill and eat these unclean animals. Let's read on. Verse 14. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, do not call common. The voice from heaven gives a strong command. Do not call this common. Why? Why not? Because God himself has made it clean. And Peter is just confused. He is completely perplexed. It's such a confusing vision. I mean, what, what does this all mean? And suddenly these men come to his house and the Holy Spirit addresses him. Read with me, verse 19. The Holy Spirit comes and it says, And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. That word hesitation actually means differentiation. Actually means without dividing or distinguishing between. The Holy Spirit says, come and follow these men without any distinguishing, without any differentiation at all. And Peter immediately knows what the vision means. In 11.12, he puts it this way. He says in chapter 11, verse 12, And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Peter hears this voice. The Holy Spirit speaking to him and immediately he knows that this vision is not about animals at all. 
It's not about food at all. No, this, this vision, this dream is about people. It is about people. This vision is about one thing, one implication of the gospel. And that is that all people have been made clean through the finished work of Jesus. All people. You know, Paul, uh, Peter sorry, puts it this way in chapter 10, 34. He says to Cornelius when he stands to speak, Now I know that God shows no partiality. He shows no favoritism, but treats all people equally. This vision is not about food. It is about an implication of the gospel that God shows no partiality. He doesn't see clean people and unclean people. No, he sees people that are trusting in Christ and people that are not trusting in him. It's about the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus Christ came for sinners. That in our place condemned he stood. That though there was a requirement of the law, that though there were sins that we committed, though we were enemies with God, though we hated him, he stood in our place and died on our behalf. And now that by his blood and his blood alone, we're washed completely clean. Completely clean. No no sin or defilement, no failure to obey any law that stands between. Washed completely clean. Clean by the blood of Jesus. I, I just want us to just pause here and feel the significance of this. Just, just for a moment. Think about it. All laws completely fulfilled. Not that the law is irrelevant, but that it was fulfilled by Christ. That he himself completed all the requirements of the law. No separation remaining. All separation removed. Race. Education, income, intellect, where you live, where you were born. I mean, consider your failings. Your failings as a husband. Your failings as a son. Your failings as a daughter or as a student or as a teacher or... In any situation, all failings completely washed clean by the blood of Christ. I mean, this is absolutely the death knell for legalism. Completely. Legalism, law abiding is no longer necessary at all. I mean, think about it with me. I, I, I just... I just want to address anyone here who, who feels isolated or left out or unloved and alone. Can you, can you see the implication of this for you? God views you as a precious child of his. You are one of his people. You will never be alone. 
He is always with you. Those that are guilty with their failures, failures as a husband, failures as a daughter, failures at work, failures in service, failures in life, you will never ultimately be a failure, but one day you will stand with him in victory, complete. He paid for your fails and you are his precious child. Conversely, I believe it it speaks to those that are pleased with their own efforts, doesn't it? The self-made man who's, who's worked hard to achieve all he's achieved in life, who's done it off the skin of his own back. The gospel says all come in need and all are saved by grace. So the self-made man or woman is no better than anyone else in their need for grace. The law is dead, completely done. Well, the next day they they head out and Cornelius gathers together his family and his friends. It seems like he's got this great multitude together, it says. It's like he's, he wants everyone he can possibly get together to hear this. And uh, read on with me in, in verse 25. It says, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet, And worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up, I am too a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common. Or unclean. And Cornelius is so fresh, isn't he? I love it. He comes, gathers everyone together, and then embarrasses himself in front of everyone by falling down and, and worshipping Peter. And Peter says, as we've discussed, he says, You know it's taboo for me to be here. But God has shown me not to call anyone common or unclean. And he goes on to preach the gospel to everyone present. And this is huge for the church. This is massive. The church will continue to wrestle with this event for the rest of the New Testament, how God can include the Gentiles. Well, Peter receives an amazing dream that helps him to see more fully the implications of the gospel, doesn't he? That God treats all people impartially, showing no favoritism at all, on the basis of trust in Christ and Christ alone, that by grace through faith in him, he joins people to himself from all nations. So if you're a Christian, this is your story, that God has removed every divide that once excluded you and joined him, joined you to his people. Well, a third point, the dynamite. Well, what's the result of the gospel being preached. Let's continue reading. Verse 44. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on him, or fell on all who heard the word. 
And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain some days. Paul preaches the gospel to these guys. He's not even finished quite all he wants to say. And the Holy Spirit just explodes boom, down, and suddenly people are speaking in tongues. It's like a Gentile Pentecost. All of a sudden, there's this gospel explosion as the Spirit comes. And just like in chapter 2, we see another fulfillment of Jesus' promise that they will go out and be his witnesses to the ends of the earth as the Gentiles, even the Gentiles, are filled with the Spirit. And so I just wanted to spend some time looking at three explosive implications of what we've just witnessed here. Three implications, explosive, powerful implications of this event. The first is that prejudice is completely removed. Read with me chapter 10, verse 45. One more time. Chapter 10, verse 45 says... And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So you have these Jewish Christians, these Jewish believers, and they're completely amazed. But they're not amazed to see the Holy Spirit poured out. No, they're not amazed at that. They're amazed to see the Holy Spirit poured out on Gentiles, on the dogs. You know, in chapter 11, verses 2 through to 3, it says this, it says, So when Peter, having preached the gospel and coming back to Jerusalem, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. It's that same word again. They, they divided with him. They differentiated with him. It's a play on words saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. They dispute, they divide, they differentiate with them. This is play on words because in verse 12, again, Peter says, and the spirit told me to go with them, making no the same word again, distinction. The, the Jewish believers are completely amazed that the gospel would be poured out on Gentiles. And so when they return back, the the Jewish believers that are there immediately criticize him. And so when Peter comes back and then goes on to, to, to explain the whole account of events to them, all of what's happened, all of how the Spirit has come and been poured out on the Gentiles, you have this beautiful scene in the very last verse. It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And you can almost see it, can't you? Like Peter's been explaining everything that's happened and then suddenly the Spirit's out on the Gentiles and the room is completely silent. People are stunned. They sit there in silence contemplating what has just been said, but they quickly move to praise. 
And they praise God that he's granted repentance that leads to, leads to life, even to the Gentiles. Well, I want to ask us a question. And that is, who is it that you harbor prejudice against? You know, I think we're inclined to harbor prejudice against anyone that's not in our age or stage. But who is it for you? Is it immigrants? People of different nationalities, Indians or Chinese or Lebanese or... And you think to yourself, oh, I just don't, just don't like those people. Wouldn't really want to spend time with people like that. Is it people of other religions like Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or Mormons? And you think, just wouldn't want to have anything to do with those people. Um, Or maybe it's women. Or maybe it's men. Or maybe it's homosexuals. And you think to yourself, I wouldn't, I just, no, I just wouldn't. I know they need the gospel, but just not for me. Now, I was thinking about that issue in particular this week. I was thinking about my work at the hospital at St. Vincent's Private. And some months ago, there was a man who was in his 40s who was a patient of mine, and he'd been ill for quite a long time um, with a, a serious illness. And in fact, he fairly recently passed away. But during the time that I was responsible for caring for him, we sort of got to know one another. And, and this man was a homosexual man. He was a practicing homosexual. He had a, a long-term partner. He would often come and visit him. And we sort of got to know each other and through caring for him. And, and one day the conversation turned to, well, look, Brendan, what do you do when you're not here? And I explained to him, look, you know, I, I actually I work for a church. I'm training to be a pastor. And he went completely silent. And he said to me, you know, Brendan, I would never have guessed it. And I was like puzzled. Was that? I thought, you know, like... Why? And looked me in the eyes and he said, you're far too nice. And I thought to myself, isn't that a tragedy? That when this man thinks of Christians, he thinks people that hate me. And I think, far be it for us as Christians to ever leave any person or people group or racial group or ethnicity to think that we hate them. As Christians, all, all they should be hearing from us is love, the love of Christ. How he, he paid for their sins in full at the cost of his life, how he's changed our lives. All they should be hearing from us is love and care. And yet, and yet so often as Christians, we can be guilty of prejudice, can't we? And you know what? Nothing hinders the spread of the gospel like prejudice. And so the spirit descends on these people gathered around and it's removed. Well, 
first explosive implication, prejudice, is removed. Well, secondly, people repent. Cornelius, he was, a, he was a great man. He was a God-fearing man. He was generous. He was prayerful. But friends, this was not enough. No, Cornelius needed something more. In verse 42 and 43, Peter stands up to preach the gospel. And he says, at the end of his message, he says, And Jesus Christ commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And at the end of Peter's presentation to the believers in Jerusalem, the believers glorify God that God has granted Gentiles repentance that leads to life. You know, it wasn't enough for Cornelius just to be a good, godly, devout man. He needed to repent and believe in Christ. And so I want to put forward to anyone that's sitting here this morning that doesn't know Christ a challenge. You know, the gospel is a message that requires a response. And so if you're someone who doesn't yet know Christ and hasn't yet fully made a decision for yourself to put your trust in him. And Jesus Christ, he invites you. He welcomes you. He says, come to me and repent. That word repent just means change your mind. Say you're sorry for the things you've done wrong. Turn around and make a decision to go in the other direction. And receive forgiveness of sins through faith in him. He will wash away every sin. He will wash away every failure if only you trust in him. As, as leaders in the church, there's nothing we love more than to sit and pray with someone who wants to receive that gift. So if that's you, after this service, I just invite you, come down the front. I'll talk to your friend if, if you've come along with a friend. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to help you in that process of making a decision. Well, The Holy Spirit descends and prejudice is removed. Repentance is granted. And the gospel spreads. Hindrance to the spread of the gospel is completely removed. And and next week we're going to be looking at what happens. The, The whole house of people is converted. There's people being baptized everywhere. And then the gospel just flies out and suddenly it's in Antioch. And then it's in Cyprus, and that's in Pisidia, and that's in Iconium and Lystra. And it's like, boom, explosion of the gospel. And the gospel moves forward, and the gospel keeps traveling, and people keep coming to know Christ, coming to repentance and trust in him. And friends, we're caught up in this movement of the gospel. We're caught up in a ripple of this gospel explosion, aren't we? Even last week, hearing of someone who's come to trust in Christ for the first time, Even this morning, hearing of people being renewed after many years of a cold heart towards the Lord and faith and trust of him. There's a a gospel explosion happening here, and, and we have a privilege of being a part. 
Well, prejudices removed, people repent, the gospel spreads. The kind of prejudice we see in 12 years a slave is abhorrent to the God who shows no impartiality but accepts everyone through faith and trust in Christ. In Acts chapters 10 and 11, we we see God use a dream to overcome and divide between Jew and Gentile. And the result is dynamite for an explosion of the gospel into the world. If you're a Christian, God has removed every divide that once excluded you and joined you to his people. Every divide is removed. And there is no place for fear. Or exclusion. Just thanksgiving and praise. Won't you join with me in praying? Lord, this morning we want to, we just want to thank you for amazing grace. Lord, you know we, we, we say it so often and the words can become for us so rote and devoid of meaning. But this, this morning afresh, we, we want to say, Lord, your grace is amazing. Your grace is amazing. That, that you would send Christ, your son, to by his blood wash our sins away. That Christ would... Fulfill every demand of the law, every obstacle to us being with you, every every barrier, every hindrance, every failure, everything would be completely brought to naught at the foot of your cross. Lord, your grace is amazing. Lord, I, I just pray for us, Lord. Lord, you know that There are many people in this world that are hard to love. We know it, Lord, because we know it personally for ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a radically loving people. Lord, far be it for us to ever exclude anyone from coming to you, Lord, because of their race, because of their ethnicity, because of their background, because of past sins, Lord. Forbid it, Lord. May people know of us in this church, Christ and him crucified and nothing else, Lord. Lord, would you, would you help us, Lord, to be a welcoming people, Lord? Would you help us to glorify your name as we love others and love one another, Lord? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.